And welcome back to the Lars Resort, which remains a podcast with me, Lars Stevenson, brought to you by Betson. Now, just me today, Peter is off, I don't know, riding horses, shooting things possibly, I mean, doing whatever uh, people in Texas do in their spare time. I don't, I don't think Peter spends a lot of time shooting things. He doesn't seem like that kind of guy to me. Whereas I, in, in my spare time, have recently been watching quite a lot of football. Uh, at the weekend, the third round of the FA Cup came around, and we had the League Cup stuff this this midweek. And boy, oh boy, I have some notes. I, I have some things to say, and I, I don't know. I don't know how common this phenomenon is. I'm not sure it's common enough to have a specific word for it. I feel like there should be a word for it, uh, which is when you um, when you have something that you you think you'll like in theory, but then you don't really feel it when it's happening, right? Is, is there a word for that? Like, it's not cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is if you've got, like, two beliefs that, like, conflict and just kind of don't align in your mind and it becomes a contradiction there. Uh, but, but this is, like, when you mentally and intellectually like something but, like, on an emotional level don't really connect with it. But that, that That's where I'm at with these early rounds of the FA Cup because the FA Cup... Um, it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me in terms of how I see football in a very ideological way, you know. I, I think having a competition where everyone can can get in at an early stage, of course, is, is, is really good. You know, the big teams, they have an advantage. They only come in later. They, have, they can skip a couple of rounds. But theoretically, it's a tournament that everyone can win. Teams big and small have a theoretical chance of winning it. And, um, and and because if because it's a one-off game as well, there's more of a random element. You know, the if the rich uh, clubs have a bad day or have an unlucky bounce or something, they can get caught by that, and they don't have like 37 games to, to make it right afterwards. Uh, so I, I, it's an inclusive tournament that kind of embraces the randomness of football, the inherent randomness of football, which is something I really like, which can be a great leveler. Uh, and with me being very concerned about the increasing gap between the wealthiest clubs and the rest, and with me thinking it's actually really negative uh, for the sport in general, that we've got now a handful of teams that just kind of completely dominate everything, this should be good, right? The FA Cup should be perfect for what I want to see uh, in the world. It, except when I was watching it this weekend, I don't know about you guys, I was not hyped for the FA Cup. I did not have FA Cup fever. My uh, my cup was more half empty than half full. My my cup did not runneth over, etc. and and so on. I may like it in 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 theory. I may like it in principle. But I was watching Man City like casually dismantle Huddersfield, and it, and it was kind of hard not to think: Is this really the best use of my time right now? <laughs> like really, I could be could be doing really anything else. Um, QPR Bournemouth, much more interesting game, but watching it is like, yeah, what, what did it move me on an emotional level? Was I was I wrapped up in it? Can't say that I was, to be honest. Even though you know it was a surprise two 0 lead for QPR and a comeback by Bournemouth. Also. Wigan United Monday night, kind of boring. <laughs> I admit it was uh, it was not lit, as the young people say. What 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 is the opposite of lit? It, it was doused. You know, it was soggy. There was no spark. I just thought the whole uh, third round weekend just didn't really take off for me. Uh, Sunderland, uh, of course, the biggest disappointment, I would say. The, the biggest disappointment of the weekend was Newcastle Sunderland because everything was just set up for that to be fun. Like, that that should have been fun. Uh, Newcastle in a bit of a slump, as we said, we made fun of them last week for being zombie Newcastle. Sunderland, a pretty youthful, you know, upwardly mobile, possibly, championship side. Um, the first time we're Derby in ages, 
it should have been great and it just wasn't uh Sunderland didn't make any impact in that game it was very very easy for Newcastle kind of annoyed with Michael Beale I have to say the the relatively new Sunderland manager because the team was very clearly under instructions to like play out from the back when they also very clearly did not seem very comfortable doing so and, and yeah, Newcastle are not playing their best football at the moment. If there's one thing we know about Newcastle, is they are very good at pressing. Uh, they've struggled to really implement that style in the Premier League recently, I think because of fatigue. Uh, but, you know, you're Sunderland. Maybe don't take on one of the best pressing teams around and go, come at me, bro. Like, Because they will, and, and they did, <laughs> especially if you're not that good at playing it out from the back. So they kept playing themselves into trouble uh, and, and it was just so weird because in the game like this, it's a local derby. Clearly, in terms of talent level, you're an inferior team. So you want to make it nasty and unpleasant for your opponent. And they just never did. And the whole thing was just so disappointing. Um, but, but, but listen, the whole third round wasn't terrible. You, you had some really good goals. You know, the Patrick Bamford one, uh, goal of the season contender. Do seek that out if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, the Pedro Porro goal for Spurs, of course, not too shabby either. You did have stuff like Maidstone uh, beating Stevenage, Eastley forcing a draw out of Newport. You know, stuff like this is kind of kind of cool. And, of course, one of those two playing Man United in the next round, Eastley or Newport, that's going to be a, a, a nice occasion. Uh, there's some sprinkles of cup magic here, but only sprinkles, I thought. No, no flood of cup mar- mar- magic. Just little drips of cup magic. You, you, what you want to do is be, be bowled over by a tidal wave of cup magic, and that did not happen. And actually, almost slightly disappointingly, I guess, one of the most interesting games of the weekend for me was Arsenal-Liverpool, which is kind of not what you want from the third round of the FA Cup, but that was an interesting game. Uh, I thought I thought Arsenal, because I thought Arsenal were really good in the first half, they, they moved the ball well, they played some nice football, didn't score, as as we remember. And okay, some of that first half performance from Arsenal will have been that this was a Liverpool that was without Salah, without Soboslai, without Endo. Yeah, I think Soboslai already a very important factor in that midfield. Endo hasn't reinvented the wheel, but I think he gives them some nice balance and solidity in that midfield when he's been in. The way Klopp set the team up in the first half didn't seem to really work the way he wanted. He made some changes in the second half and Liverpool got better. And and I guess it was another example of this strange thing with Liverpool, which is that they're top of the league, but they really do feel like they're a work in progress. Um, I, I don't think it's obvious what their best 11 is right now, but on the plus side, they do have a few different interesting options, both in midfield and up front, which gives Klopp the opportunity to, to change things around when the situation calls for it, which I think he did very successfully in that game. I, I've said before, I think Jota being fit and available again will make a real difference to them uh, going forward. He has this sort of ruthlessness to him uh, that I like a lot, especially now with Salah away for a bit. Darwin, we know, works really hard, gets into positions. He's inconsistent with his finishing, uh, shall we say, to put it very politely, but but he, he causes chaos. Uh, I think he might be a more useful player than some give him credit for. Diaz is explosive, gets past people, has nice aggression. and uh, Gapko is a very useful player, but with Salah away, you would worry a little bit about whether or not you're getting enough goals from this group. And uh, I was looking at these numbers uh, before the Fulham game, I should say, but according to FB Ref, uh, Diogo Jota is arguing uh 0.72 non-penalty goals per 90 so almost three quarter of a goal excluding penalties uh per 90 minutes on the pitch for the last 365 days for, for liverpool which is a very good number right that's that's high he will get you goals and and by comparison darwin is averaging 0.442 so less than half a goal diaz 0.3 uh, gapco 0.4 so 
this is obviously a very simplistic way of looking at it. There's obviously a ton of variables involved in, in creating chances, and the other players give you a ton of other things, and yada, yada, yada. But it also gives you a sense of just how much more of a goal threat Jota can be compared to the other guys. So him cl- coming back at this point in time when Salah's going away, I think that's super useful for, for Liverpool. Speaking of goal threats, Arsenal. Hmm. Like probably had better chances overall in this game. I'm, I'm sure their XG was quite a bit higher. I haven't checked. Uh, but, but they didn't take any of them. And, and, and when they conceded, they then conceded an own goal from a set piece and then a late counterattack as they were trying to push forward. And sort of my natural tendency would always be to say, if you've played a reasonably good game, created more chances than the opponent, missed them, but then conceded from an own goal and a late counter, I would tend to go, yeah, meh. It, it, it's football. It, it happens. I think it's possible to overreact to a game like that. But but I, I guess the thing is you also have to see it in the context of the situation and Arsenal's recent run, which is that they've now lost three in a row. They've won just one in their last six in all competitions. That's kind of serious when your team... That's kind of serious when you're a team aiming to win the league, right? And then going for trophies, that kind of run can really derail your season. Now, the sort of uh, boring statistician's answer to this would be that last season they overperformed their XG by quite a bit. This season they're no longer doing that. Their process is still pretty good, though. They're still creating a good amount of chances they're probably fine if they just keep going things will work themselves out now that's not an unreasonable answer to the situation but but as much as i worship at the altar of the underlying numbers you guys know this about me it feels like an unsatisfactory answer to arsenal's situation right now um it's it, it might be useful to bear in mind that that arsenal overperformed their numbers last season uh, because based on that we should maybe be a bit careful with what the expectations are you know the natural instinct for fans and pundits and the media myself everyone is to to look at last season to look at a season and and hope that you do better next season that's what we do we always aim for better teams are expected to constantly be developing evolving especially when you have a young squad like arsenal uh, do no one ever looks at a league finish looks at the xg and goes ah well they did better than their numbers there. It would be a great success if they could avoid regression and do similarly well next season. That's just not how we think. We look at what they did and think, ah, can they do better next season? We, we were always looking upwards. And when Arsenal were in the in the lead for long periods of time last season, ultimately didn't win the league, our natural way of thinking is, well, can they actually win it next year? That's, that's obviously going to be the way people look at it. And of course, when you then spend something like 200 million in the transfer market all in, that, that, that kind of raises the stakes a bit as well. But yeah, after last season, I think some regression was maybe to be expected. But at the same time, Arsenal do have a young squad. They should be getting better. They've spent some decent money in the transfer market. So them being 10 points worse off in the league now than they were after 20 games last season, that that is a little bit disappointing. I think you have to say. Now, because Arsenal have scored two goals in their last four games, there will be calls for them to sign a striker. I, I believe they've scored two goals for something like 74 shots in their last four games. Like, that is not ideal. Uh, in the league, uh, Bukayo Saka is their top scorer with six goals. Um, six goals and six assists, by the way, which is a perfectly reasonable return for a 22-year-old winger. Like, 12 goal involvements in 19 games is good. That is nothing to sniff at. The, the, the problem is that after Saka... It's like Enketia has five in ten starts, nine games off the bench. Havertz has got four in thirteen starts, six off the bench. Uh, Martin Odegaard there has four in seventeen starts. Declan Rice has chipped in with three in twenty starts. Jesus with uh, three in eleven starts and four off the bench. Now, 
just to be clear, I, I do believe that you score goals because you're winning games and not the other way around. Uh, if you're playing well and your process is good, as they say, and you create chances, the goals will come. But you do need those goals to come from somewhere, <laughs> is the thing. I, this isn't completely black and white, I don't think. I think it's entirely possible to, to win the Premier League with a striker who doesn't get you 20 goals a season. We've seen it done. But you do need those goals to be coming from somewhere else then. And I think we've possibly had this chat with Peter the other day. If you look at Arsenal's rivals for the title this season, Man City has Erling Haaland when he's fit again. Liverpool have Salah when he comes back from AFCON again. But the point is that both of those teams have a guy who will win you a bunch of games just by being consistently uh, sharp in front of goal and consistently getting them goals. Arsenal does not have that guy. Like, Saka is obviously an amazing player, but he's not quite in that bracket. His most productive season was last season. He scored 14 in 37 starts. But, but Holland and, and Salah have got 14 now, and it's early January, so you can't really compare. Martinelli has scored 2 in 17 starts. Like, this is not good. So the hope was, and I kind of went along with this theory, or at least I thought it was a very interesting experiment, was that I think Kai Havertz could get you a decent amount of goals from, from midfield and that that would help, you know. As you know, I'm one of the biggest Kai Havertz defenders out there. Uh, is this a hill I'm willing to die on? Maybe not, but it is certainly a hill I'm willing to contract a rare and terrible disease on and and suffer bad injuries. I will stay on this hill through hunger and, and gangrene, uh, maybe maybe departed just before I die. But uh, because I watch him play football and you can see what kind of skill set he has, there's so much to like about what he brings to a team. But at the age of 24, he is still weirdly a man without a position, I think. In his last two years in Germany, he scored 17 from 33 starts and 12 from 29, mostly as a number 10, sometimes playing out wide. We all know the story after that. Chelsea ended up using him as a striker out of necessity. That never fully seemed to work. Arteta sees him as more of a number 8 in a 4-3-3, which in theory you'd think he has the skill set for, but it just hasn't quite worked so far. And, and maybe this is me reading too much into 45 minutes of football maybe it was just Liverpool being bad but I did think Arsenal looked a little bit better this weekend with Jorginho next to Rice in more of a traditional sort of you know you, you add an you add an extra guy next to Rice who just kind of wants to wants to sit deep and it frees up Rice to maybe go forward a bit which you might want him to do certainly frees up Erdogan to do some more Erdogan things and it leads Kai Havertz without a spot in that midfield again. Now, you're not going to play Jorginho every week, obviously, because I don't think he can play that many games. But, yeah, I do wonder if the Kai Havertz number eight thing is... If enough time has passed for us to be able to conclude that that doesn't quite seem to work in this team. In which case, you have a guy you've spent quite a lot of money on who, who needs a new place uh, in the team in which he can play... And it kind of leaves him playing up front again, which hasn't really worked 100% before. It uh, didn't seem to fully work in this game, but I would be interesting to seeing it more uh, in, in this team. I don't fully buy this idea that you just stick Ivan Tony in there and everything's going to be fine. Spoke about that in the last episode, I think. The deal just make, doesn't make a ton of sense to me financially and stuff. And Arteta's been working for a few years now on a style of play where you do have a striker who drops into midfield, who moves around, who helps create overloads, all that kind of good stuff. If you put someone in there who's more of a pure number nine, you have to change quite a lot about the way the team plays. Are you really rejigging everything for Ivan Tony? Like, as much as I like him, I don't think that's what you do. Maybe you go out and spend like 100 million plus on Victor Ossiman. Maybe you've decided that he is so good he can be your haul on 
he's a striker who's worth changing your system for. But I don't think that's a deal you can do in January anyway. That probably has to wait until the summer if that's something you have the money to do. So I think there's a case to be made actually in January now that that bringing in some kind of wide player to take some of the burden off Saka and Martinelli, someone who's better than Trossard, that that kind of makes sense. Partially because there's just more of them out there. If you look around in the transfer market, I think it's easier to find a potentially productive uh, wide player than it is to find a number nine. And I guess after another game in which Arsenal didn't score, when he played up front, after he struggled this season, I know precisely no one wants to hear me say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Maybe Kai Havertz's false nine <laughs> can be the solution here. <laughs> or maybe part of the solution. It's worth trying. Yeah, I, I know that made you laugh or turn off the pod or something. But listen, I am Team Kai. Team Havertz, I'm telling you. The, the Kai Havertz redemption arc... It is coming. Someday it'll happen. There's too much of good football in that boy for for him to never sort of find his place. But I'm definitely starting to have doubts uh, about Arteta's uh, plan of using him as a number eight, which I fully endorsed. So this is not me being wise after the fact. I also thought this could work. Hasn't really done so far. Maybe put him back up front. Let's let's move Kai around. He played fullback for the German national team. Maybe do that. I mean, I don't know. There's got to be a place for Havertz. He's too good a player. Now, speaking of ineffectual Germans who used to play for Chelsea, Timo Werner on loan to Tottenham. Why? Is 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 what a lot of people are thinking. I, I, I think that's fair to say. Why does Tottenham want to forward uh, who currently can't get in the team at RB Leipzig and who hasn't scored double figures in a season in almost half a decade? Seems weird. Why would you do that? But listen... If you guys know anything at all about me after all this time of of podcasting, you should know that this is the kind of case I really like. I'm weirdly interested in players with unfulfilled potential, hence my minor obsession with Kai Havertz. You know those TV shows where they, like, fix up houses? Like home improvement shows, or um, or even something like um, Homes Under the Hammer. And so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of them. I really like them. When you take something that's maybe a bit derelict but has potential, and then you make some tweaks and some fixes, and, and you make them good and, and useful again. I find that process very satisfying. And, of course, we see that kind of stuff in football all the time. And I think Timo Werner has... Well, he has some of the ingredients to, to be that kind of story. Like, in football... These sort of home improvement scenarios, I think they're often about taking a misfiring player and putting him into a collective context that makes more sense for that particular individual player. Like at Newcastle, great examples there, Miguel Miron did not make a lot of sense as a player in like a Steve Bruce team that sat back and never had the ball very much. Like he didn't, he was very ineffective in in that situation. Eddie Howe comes in, it's now much more about pressing, energy, fast transitions. Suddenly Almiron looks like a really useful player because he's actually getting the ball in good positions because his work rate means he's a useful presser because he's quick so he's good on transitions. Like suddenly the whole thing works much better. Similar-ish, I guess, with Joel Linton, who, you know, there there was a positional change there as well, of course. I mean, he had been kind of a pressing forward for Hoffenheim. Newcastle bought him and left him up front as a target man for a team that just didn't press at all. And he just looked totally lost, couldn't hold the ball up, never had any service, just total disaster. His confidence goes as well. How spots that, hey, 
this guy can do things, but maybe other things, and and puts him in central midfield where that sort of energy and drive and athleticism that he has makes him very very useful. Anyway, those kinds of stories, I love them. They're great. So you ask yourself why Tottenham are looking to loan and potentially sign a striker who hardly ever scores, misses a lot of chances. You know, at at Chelsea, he seemed almost comically inept in front of goal. Why would Tottenham want that? Well, I, I would say that there is a fairly obvious logic here, which is what do we know about Tottenham and how they play this season? Well, we know they're pressing very high up the pitch. We discussed those numbers with Peter the other week. Uh, Tottenham are right near the top of the league in terms of pressing the opponent in their half. What have we learned about Ange Postacoglu so far at Spurs? Well, one of the things we've learned is that he values mobility very highly in his players. Uh, players who are quick and cover a lot of ground, that is like right near the top of what Ange Postacoglu wants. So, you know, Papsar plays over Hybeig. Emerson plays in central defense over Dyer because the way Ange wants Tottenham to play Play, he needs people who can run and if there is one thing we know about Timo Werner he can definitely run like he's very fast he works very hard off the ball he can press uh, he can make forward runs when the team's in possession he is uh, shall we say not clinical in front of goal this is true <laughs> we saw that at Chelsea uh, but we also know that in the four seasons he played for Leipzig before joining Chelsea he scored 21 13 16 and 28 goals so, so 78 goals and 118 starts over four seasons in the Bundesliga. Now, that's not terrible. Now, I watch enough Bundesliga to know there's quite a lot of chaotic defending in that league. A lot of teams really push up, a lot of galloping fullbacks. Uh, it's definitely true that if you're a very fast forward who's good at breaking into space, you're going to get a lot of chances in that league, maybe more so than other places. But you do have a player here that at one point of his life was able to kick the ball into the goal with some regularity. At Chelsea, uh, that ability deserted him. Uh, he looked like his confidence really took a hit. In fact, he's talked about losing his confidence there. But what we've also seen at Tottenham since Ash took over, quite a few players that, that looked kind of bad last year have blossomed and became become much better versions of themselves. So, so I, I wouldn't necessarily expect too much uh, from him at Tottenham straight away. But, but the baseline of what Tottenham are getting is a player who has the kind of pace and work rate that Ange really wants from all of his players. So he should fit well into the system. He may miss a lot of chances. We have seen that before. But there is also a small chance that, like we've seen with a few other players, playing under Ange in a system that suits him, maybe some of that confidence will come back in front of goal. Maybe he'll start putting away his chances. In which case, this could be a really good signing for, for Tottenham. Now, I wouldn't expect that, but I would just say that it's not impossible that that happens. I think... When a player has kind of lost his way, trying to fix that should always start with putting that individual into a collective context where his skill set matches what the system is asking from him. So yeah, there's definitely a chance that he will come in, do the work, run around, miss a bunch of chances, become a meme. Like, this could happen. Uh, but it seems to me that this deal has a pretty low downside and a big potential upside. You know, I'm guessing it's not super expensive for, for Tottenham. Uh, reports are that they've agreed a fee to make it permanent that's very low. I mean, I saw 15 million mentioned somewhere, which would be a crazy sum given the player Werner has been before. His wages are probably not low. Uh, but, but you know, I, I don't think financially this is going to sink Tottenham. So so I'm filing this under sure. Why not? Or worth a try. Or all oh, this stuff. Very interesting. I love a fixer-upper. And the team of Werner, definitely one of those. So I'm going to keep a keen eye on him going forward to see how that goes. Uh, what else is happening? Oh, yes. 
Jordan Henderson wants to come home from Saudi Arabia. I mean, that that's very funny, I think. And, because it turns out, I've read reports about this uh, over the weekend, it turns out it's very hot and humid when they play games in Saudi Arabia, and Hendo does not like it. I mean, you guys, there was obviously no real way for him to figure this out before he went there, right? <laughs> does he not? Does, does Jordan Henderson not know how to work the Google? Is this beyond him? Turns out it's hot in Saudi Arabia. Good, good stuff, Hendo. Uh, I, I read here from one of these reports, an exclusive by Matt Hughes in the Mail on Sunday. It says, In addition to adjusting to a different lifestyle, the 33-year-old has also struggled with the heat and humidity of the playing conditions. While Al Etifak's average attendance this season of 7,800 in a 33,000 capacity stadium has proved less than inspiring. The abuse he has received from moving to Saudi in the first place which has been criticized as an allegedly betrayal of the LGBTQ plus community, has also taken its toll. Now, I mean, how bad are your advisors, man? Like, I, Endo, I'm sorry, I could have told you all of this before you went, right? The, the, when this offer comes in, when the money from Saudi comes, you, you know a couple of things. You know it's going to be a bit shit. Like, you know the football's going to be awful. You, the climate's going to be a shock for you as a British person. You know that people will dislike you for selling out to, like, homophobic decapitation enthusiasts. Like, all of this was just blindingly obvious. It's like if I'm cooking and I decide to drop this frying pan on my foot, will I experience some discomfort? Probably yes. Like, these are, these are things that, that are just cause and effect. But, of course... The money was good enough that that he went anyway. Fair enough. I've always said on this pod, I don't think, or I certainly think we should be cautious about, like, turning down money on other people's behalf. It's always a lot easier to sit on our sofa and say, oh, I don't care about money. Uh, You've never had that size of contract in front of you. Like, you don't know what that feels like. And uh, you don't know what people's personal circumstances are. People can have all sorts of reasons for, for doing it. But once you decide to do it, at least stick it out, for God's sake. I mean... I think selling yourself out to Saudi and then, like, come back six months begging, like, oh, it's a bit hot, I don't like it. Like, that might be the most pathetic of all possible options there. Like, terrible. Now, the good news for people who are hyped for Hendo and want to sign some Jordan Henderson is that he explained to The Athletic a few months ago that the money is not a big factor for him. I think this is a great quote. He said, uh, in, in rea- on, on people criticizing him for going for the money, he says, in reality, that wasn't the case at all. People can believe me or not. But in my life and my career, money has never been a motivation. Ever. Don't get me wrong. When you move, the business deal has to be tight. You have to have financials. You have to feel wanted. You have to feel valued. And money's part of that, he said. That's a very confusing quote to me. Uh, The business deal has to be tight. Money's part of feeling wanted. But money has never been a motivation ever. That I, I believe that might be what we talked about as cognitive dissonance earlier on. It doesn't quite make sense to me. But I would certainly be tempted if I was a club in the Premier League, maybe championship, to, to, to take Hendo at his word uh, that money is not a motivation for him and just offer him a contract accordingly. <laughs> he said, well, yeah, money not a motivation. I mean, you can play for us. Like, the money's kind of bad, but you not a motivation for you, so it should be fine. Um, that is if Al-Etifak are looking to sell. Maybe they're not looking to sell. Maybe Al-Etifak are expecting him to, you know, fulfill his contract. That's that. That could be a thing. So I, I'm I'm very tempted to to go through everything Anderson has said 
about not just going there to, uh, to for the money, about wanting to grow the league and and the thing he thought he could affect change by just being there. He he talked about that. Like it's Sabib, I have my beliefs. If I'm in Saudi Arabia, that that is a positive. All this sort of nonsense. But but that feels like I mean that might be low hanging fruit even for me. You know, um, I don't know you guys. I I completely accept that most people do their job primarily to make money. Footballers are no different. I don't really have a problem with players deciding that money is more important than other considerations when they plan their career. That's up to them. But but just be honest about it, I think. Just don't lie to people all the time. That, that would be good. Just say, I think if Henderson had said, hey, I'm 33, I've already won a bunch of things, I've only got a few more years of this stuff in me. I can either take a pay cut and get kicked around every week uh, playing for some mid-table team somewhere, or I can go and make a fortune by just loafing around in the Gulf for a couple of years. Like, you do the maths. One of these options seems better to me than the other. I think if you just said that, people would maybe not respect him for it because of the Saudi thing, but it would be less ridiculous uh, than than claiming that it wasn't about the money. Because, like, it was, and we know it was. Anyway, when this Saudi thing kicked off, I mean, we haven't talked a lot about it on the pod. You did see people like predict this: the rise of this league is now inevitable. They will spend so much money, and all the good players will go there. It is just a matter of time. And I, I don't know, man. I I spoke to someone who's worked in football in that part of the world, and 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 he was much more lukewarm about it, and just said. Well, one thing that was pointed out to me, at least, was that we shouldn't underestimate how incompetent a lot of the people running these clubs are, you know? Uh, and, and listen, the PIF-owned clubs, you know, Newcastle United's uh, sister clubs, if you will, uh, Al-Itihad, Al-Ali, Al-Nasser, and Al-Hilal, things will probably be done at a reasonable standard. You know, they're putting a lot of money into this. And uh, listen, you're playing for one of those four. You're based in either Riyadh or Jeddah or, or just based outside of the country. As we've learned with Endo, he's lived in Bahrain. Couldn't be arsed to even live in Saudi. Uh, but yeah, if you're based in Riyadh or Jeddah, those teams are averaging around 20,000 people for their home games. It's probably not a terrible life, you know. But, but outside of those big clubs, life in Saudi Arabia is going to be very, very different. And in the case of Hendo. Yeah, like we said, he he didn't want to live in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> His club is is in Maman, which is just across the bridge from from Bahrain. So Bahrain is a little bit more liberal. I, I use the term. I mean, relatively speaking, you can you can get a drink there, I believe. And and and, and I guess for him and his family. Uh, playing in Saudi Arabia is great. Wanting to grow the league and all this stuff is fabulous. Actually, living there, let's let's draw a line on that. Let's we can't be living in the country that we're now representing. Um, but but the things to remember, a lot of these clubs outside of the big ones are not very serious operations. I mean, for all the talk of astronomical wages and the tourism ads we all see. One thing that's kind of gotten lost is that FIFPro, the International Players Union, actually recommended to their players to avoid moving to Saudi Arabia. I think it was last summer or the summer before that because of a recurring problem of wages not being paid, of, of, of players, of clubs actually not fulfilling their financial obligations, of just breaking contracts. This is the reality for a lot of players in that part of the world. And we have also like heard the stories this week of how Jordan Henderson, like he arrived at Al-Etifak and, and discovered that the gym was a bit crap, so he was like, leaning on them, build a new gym, this one's really bad. Like, listen, 
Saudi Arabia do have a footballing culture and a footballing history. It would just be wrong to suggest otherwise. But players who, again, have seen the Torres Mads and the big numbers thrown at them by their agents, they may be surprised to learn that the reality is a bit more chaotic and underwhelming. The truth for most of them is that you're going to be playing bad football in front of small crowds in a climate that's going to be tough for a lot of them to adapt to for clubs that are often not run in a very professional manner and who may or may not pay you on time and what they're supposed to pay you. And no amount of glitzy Instagram stories can really compensate for that i think so in the medium term i think rather than the saudi league conquering the world i think it's more likely that quite a few of these players will do as hendo have done and decided actually this kind of sucks like i'm not having fun here and they'll start thinking about going somewhere else Uh, and in the long term as much as saudi like to promote themselves as a country with unlimited wealth I think even as much money as they have, the people who are running the sports investment thing in Saudi, they also have bosses who will ask them, well, we spent how much? And, and what are we getting back for this? Uh, because the numbers that are being thrown around, like this league will never be at break even or even get anywhere close to that. It's just going to keep losing millions and millions every year. And what kind of global imprint are you actually making? Does anyone care? Buying clubs in Europe, I get. Uh, making sure you get the World Cup. Let me phrase that carefully. Uh, making sure the World Cup comes to you. Uh, that kind of thing gets you noticed and gets you a platform to advertise yourself. I get that. But paying a bunch of has-beens millions to huff around in from the small crowds in the desert, like, I don't think that does a lot for you and your global uh, prestige. I keep seeing tweets about how many goals Ronaldo have scored, but does anyone care? Like, aside from his army of, like, prepubescent bots on the internet? Like, I'm, I'm just not convinced that that's a dynamic that's going to change anytime soon. I did see a photo of Ronaldo in his pants looking at himself in the mirror the other day. That turned up in my Twitter feeds, so that's something. Uh, maybe he just needs to fully transition from being a footballer to being like a fitness influencer. I think that might be the move for, for CR7 there. But yeah, Hendo is on the market if anyone wants to buy. Uh, I, for one, would stay away from that one. And I do have a word of advice to other footballers considering making the move to Saudi. Does get a bit hot down there, as it turns out. It's worth bearing in mind. But let's, um, yeah, this has gone on for a bit. Let's finish up where we started, talking about cups and things. Uh, because I've wrestled with this, like I said. I love it in theory, but I wasn't feeling it this weekend. It, it should excite me. It didn't. Uh, is that me being a Prem face? Which is the internet insult for someone who just cares about the Premier League? I, I really don't think so. Uh, in fact, I think quite a few people are, like me, not hyped for the cup. Adam Crafton of The Athletic, God bless him, he took uh, took a look at the attendance figures uh, over the weekend and found that certainly for clubs in the championship like uh, Coventry Hull, Stoke Blackburn, etc., attendances were down. In some cases, they were way down compared to their last league game, which does suggest that the cup games are really not uh, grabbing people's attention. Two big points to make about that, I guess, is the first one is that for home games in the league, all season ticket holders are counted as being in in attendance by default so you might see that oh it's a sellout and then you see empty seats because season tickets are always considered part of the attendance uh, for I guess sort of tax reporting reasons and all this sort of stuff Um, so you can have league games that are not as full as they seem okay Um, I'm not sure that makes a huge difference here but I think the second point that's worth making is is that these early cup games are typically not included in people's season tickets and like currently times are not good in England people are struggling to make ends meet and this is coming just after the holidays where things can be particularly tight Uh, so with ticket prices the cost of travel food etc I suspect quite a lot of people and families will look at the first weekend of January as a real good time to not go out and spend a bunch of money Um, 
our friend Peter actually WhatsApped me over the weekend to ask, like, wow, all these stadiums look empty. And and I think this is a lot to do with the timing. If, you, if you're a Blackburn fan, your family, you, you have a family, you've just, you know, spent a decent amount of money on making Christmas nice and presents and all this. You're already looking at, like, the next half term or your summer holidays and you're trying to make the budget work for that. And here your team is playing Cambridge United from League One in a game that's not included in your season ticket. That probably feels like a real good weekend to not take your kids to the football because even if the ticket prices at Blackburn are probably not crazy, like that, that day out, it, it adds up. It just doesn't seem that interesting. It comes at a time where people are particularly skinned. Yeah, people just decide to do other stuff. Interestingly, Gillingham, Newport, AFC Wimbledon did have better attendances than in their last league game. So perhaps the magic of the cup is a little bit more keenly felt down the leagues. I mean, that's possible. That that's that that is possible than in the championship. For me, I'm sure I've said it before. I'm sure I'm going to say it again. I think every Premier League team that's not in immediate risk of relegation, fighting for the title or in a tight battle for a Champions League place, should make the cups a huge, huge priority, even over the league. Because whether you finish ninth or thirteenth does not make a big difference. But getting to a cup final is huge for, for you and for the fans and for everyone. I mean, one of my favorite days covering football in the UK was uh, when Swansea uh, played and won the League Cup final, which is an incredibly joyous occasion. I remember interviewing fans on the street outside the game, like, and everyone was just delighted to be there. People had brought their families. Everyone was having a great time. And it was such a joyous occasion uh, for a club and a fan base who had never, nearly seen the club go under and then sort of climbed all the way to the Premier League and then won a cup. I suspect for the people and the families who made that trip to London that weekend, that's probably a much more vivid memory than various wins they had in the Premier League and finishing ninth that year and stuff like this. Like, we do have a problem in modern club football with the increasing level of financial and competitive dominance by a handful of clubs near the top, but the Cup does offer an avenue where everyone can have a chance to experience some kind of success and, well, glory, really. And, and I think that logically should be a big priority like what are these clubs for uh, and and i think yes clubs have big squads and i think managers actually kind of like having a chance to give minutes to, to various backups to see what they can do but you know what do it in the league honestly uh, unless you're in a tight battle for something big and meaningful the cup is your best bet for some kind of happiness i think and, and it should be treated accordingly um uh, and this was this by the way was a party political broadcast on, on behalf of the fa and league cups but uh, on that note i quite enjoyed the semi-finals of the league cup a little bit more uh, i i thought I mean, it's, it's a shame they're two-legged why they're two-legged i don't know but they have been since 1960 so i guess that's just the way it is um but it's a shame for Middlesbrough that I actually haven't beaten Chelsea. They now have to go to Stamford Bridge. That's unpleasant. But I thought both of the games, um, Middlesbrough-Chelsea and, and Liverpool-Fulham, had a good energy to them and, and were more captivating than than what I watched at the weekend. And, um, I'm, I, and, and both of them were sort of... Fulham kind of did enough, I thought, in that game to demonstrate that they could potentially make it awkward in the return leg. And, and Middlesbrough have got a one-goal advantage against the Chelsea team that never scores. So it, it is possible that we can have some excitement in the second legs. And, and maybe a team that's not Liverpool or Chelsea could make it to the final. I'm not super uh, certain that that'll happen, but it seems possible. And uh, that, that, was, uh, that, that was pretty good. I speak now as a man who desperately wants to love the Cups. 
and I didn't feel it at the weekend. Felt it a little bit more this midweek with the, the League Cup semis. And maybe that's just what happens when you get further into the tournament uh, to the quarters and semifinals and the final. It just gets more exciting. I don't know. So maybe not the magic of the cup, but there was, uh, yeah, it felt more exciting to me, certainly. Let's finish off on a, a bit of a betting thing. I'm sort of currently starting on the betting column for the weekend and looking at things and, and numbers and what my picks are going to be. And we don't have that many games to choose from in the Premier League this weekend, but there are a couple. And um, looking at the looking at what we have to pick from this weekend, I'm going to head to Newcastle. I, I, I really think it just feels like City are, are starting to get rolling now. Um, I, I, we shouldn't read much into dismantling Huddersfield, I guess. But they are starting to get people fit again. They beat Sheffield United and Everton comfortably over the holiday season. There's been some time off now. There's, the, the schedule hasn't been so intense. You know, Guardiola's had time to work on stuff in the training ground. I just kind of feel it in my waters that the the, the great Man City sort of uh, uh, winning streak of doom might be coming at us. And I certainly don't feel super comfortable uh, declaring that Newcastle are now happy again, that they're, they're having beaten Sunderland, they're no longer zombie Newcastle, it's all fine. Not sure about that. So when Man City go to visit Newcastle, I am anticipating a fairly comfortable Manchester City victory out of that one. Uh, the Betson are offering 1.58 on a straight Man City win, which is kind of, it's not a, I mean, that, that'll that go on a treble, I, I, I reckon. But as a single pick, I, I tend to, I think it's worth going with some kind of handicap here. Not going maybe all the way and doing a normal minus one handicap, though the price is, is tempting on that. You can actually get 2.62 on Manchester to win by more than a goal. Which is very tempting for me in this game, but let's let's look at the Asian handicaps. I do like the Asian handicaps uh, of Manchester City minus one point zero here, which means effectively if Manchester City win by more than a goal, you get a win. If they win by just one goal, you get your stake returned. That's how the Asian handicap stuff works. So Manchester City minus one point zero on the Asian handicap. Stake returned if they win by one goal. Uh, you win if they win by more than one. Is at uh, a price of 1.97, so almost exactly evens. I, I think that's decent. I think I, I like Manchester City to, to make this make this comfortable against the Newcastle team that I don't think... I'm not confident that they will have recovered sufficiently to, to do something here. And if they just sneak a one-goal win, as they might, you get your stake returned, so we, we hedge a little bit for that. Um... I think that's a good pick to to, to get this uh, weekend. I'll uh, I'll be back with the full weekend preview with some more stuff when I'm done writing it. Uh, but for now, thanks thanks for sticking with me for first uh, solo episode I've recorded in a while. I hope it wasn't too rusty. I hope, they, I hope this was fine. Certainly went on long enough, which they tend to do. Uh, might have to get rid of some stuff in the edit. Uh, we'll see. Uh, thanks for listening. Anyway, we will be back soon. This has yet again been the Lars Resort. And uh, you, which you have listened to, and I thank you for doing so. See ya!